Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 71. And uh, this episode is a continuation of our Reproduction Furniture Series. This is Part 6. Um, so some things, uh, some things get better and some things get worse. Uh, this episode, uh, the best and worst of the furnishings of the 1920s. Um, abundance challenges to f- create the taste of the the American buyer. Simple, artistic, bright, and attractive. So, what is our modern life? The Practical Book of Interior Decoration asked in 1919. The authors answered the rhetorical question, is it undeniable that there is our present existence, an element which is hectic, freakish, anarchic, and unwholesome. According to them, modern styles were the outgrowth of all this chaos. Yet, they admired times that were changing and Americans were now poised for a movement which awakens and and gives them time and something to think on. For those who prefer the old but what were for, for still forward-thinking or forward-looking, the authors recommended a method of decoration well adapted to modest houses, cottages, and even some apartments, which is simple and at the same time artistic, bright, and attractive. So in other words, reproduction furniture. So the call to suburbia. So just as the middle-class Americans a generation earlier had dreamed of owning a bungalow, the young people of the 1920s dreamed of a rose-hedged house in suburbia land in America. In these post-war years, the world was shrinking faster than ever before. New technology spurred on by the war was explosive. Chrome, plastic, metal tubing, aluminum, plywood, and all other sorts of new materials were invading every avenue of life, right in our homes. In the factories, faster and faster machines were turning out more and more products, cheaper than anyone could have envisioned even 25 years earlier. Houses in a variety of styles were springing up all along with newly paved, electric-lighted streets with bucolic, sonorous names like Oxford Lane, Elm Street, Park Drive, and Virginia Avenue. The designs for these homes were based on magazines and newspaper blueprints. These plans bearing such names as English Country, Dutch Colonial, Spanish Hacienda, French Provencal. While the fabulously wealthy, who were making fortunes in steel and rubber, finance and real estate, were building French chateaus or English Tudor-style palatial homes, having seven, twelve, or twenty or more bedrooms, and countless baths, the large and ever-growing middle class was happy to settle for a three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath home. In short, it was an idyllic time that blended the best of the old with the best of the new. 
Only antiques or antique-styled furniture was suitable to furnish the homes that had their origins in earlier centuries in foreign countries. The English Tudor style was so popular that the home furnishing store, W&J Sloan, brought the entire interior of the English artist William Hogarth's 18th-century London home. And another English house was purchased by wealthy industrialist Richard Crane, who donated half of it to the Art Institute of Chicago and installed the other half in his Ipswich, Massachusetts country home. Unfortunately, this is all good stuff, but he ended up raping someone else's home by paying big, big, big money for it, I and mean, that's very sad in itself. It's almost like uh, Henry Francis Dupont raped so many houses along the East Coast uh, in the early 19th century for his own aggrandizement of what he called Winter Tour. No matter how good you think Winter Tour is as a museum, he still destroyed and raped many a great home. Meanwhile, the interior decorators of the day mixed period antiques and reproductions with 17th and 18th century tapestries and untold miles of imported fabrics to complete the luxurious, romantic look of these mini estates. And for the middle class, great quantities of mass-produced English Tudor-style furniture for more modest suburban homes were churned out in every price range and quality by the whirling machines at Baker Furniture Company, Grand Rapids, upholstering companies, the Phoenix Chair Company, Washington Parlor Furniture Company, and the Valentine Seaver Company, just to mention a few. So this enormous new market for home furnishings created a field day for home and lifestyle magazines. Monthly issues grew thicker and more elegant. House Beautiful put out the House Beautiful Building Annual and the House Beautiful Furnishings Annual. Now, even without the services as a uh, (coughs) personal interior designer, the wife could confidently decorate her home just from the magazine, from the wainscoting to the floor coverings, for every aspect of her House Beautiful was discussed and illustrated in their pages. Only her pocketbook could hold her back in certain areas. But upscale magazines made no bones about it. The only acceptable reproductions had to be faithful copies of the original pieces. The 1925 House Beautiful Furnishings Annual advised its readers, The secret in selecting good furniture lies in the choice of pieces, each of a form (coughs) strictly true to the type it represents, not a hybrid product showing in itself the elements of several different types of period design. And secondly, in the use of combined period styles in the judicious selection and association of types of design which are closely related through some dominant common interest, either chronological, such as Adam, Sheraton, Chippendale, and Hepplewhite, or racial, such as Spanish or Italian. And I must say, even when I was producing this high-end furniture in my small studio in Pennsylvania for about 17 years, um, my clients only wanted something that hugged the proportion and actuality 
of the pieces that we were copied. They have to be identical as possible. The only thing my clients wanted to change from the original style timbers or woods was uh, a great demand through the 90s for tiger maple or curly maple. So uh, my studio was doing very high-end copies of the Philadelphia style of the 18th century. But nevertheless, be as it may, these companies were created forms strictly true to the type it represents. And they were proud of their accomplishments. No imitator could achieve the fine proportions, the color, nor the sculpted quality of the carvings. Proclaimed one company about its reproduction Duncan Fife table. His, which they were referring to Fife's personality, was infused into every part of this beautiful work, and no detail, however insignificant, was overlooked. It is evidence in this exquisitely proportioned reproduction card table. Echoing the familiar phase, there aren't enough companies to go around. The company of Master Craftsmen in 1927 advertised, fortunately or unfortunately, modern machinery cannot make real antiques. Yet, without consideration of expense, we find that the majority of our customers prefer a fine reproduction of a beautiful piece to a poor or excessively restored original. But to make a reproduction with the charm of the antique is no easy task. No average organization or no ordinary factory can accomplish this. The company of Master Craftsmen, and this is their actual name, Master Craftsmen, was organized to meet this situation. How did they meet it? According to their advertisement, first, to this company was brought a group of well-trained master woodworkers, able designers, adept cabinet makers, and skillful finishers. Secondly, a spacious, well-lit, well-stocked factory built in Flushing, Long Island, and was equipped with the most modern devices to assist in a comparatively rapid production of highly perfected product. Thirdly, all reproductions are taken from original pieces, which are transported to the factory whenever possible and are made available for reference as the work progresses. In addition to these great advantages, the workmen have also the advisory aid of the best-known students and critics of antique furniture, European and American. Yet another quality furniture company, Albert Grossfield, maker of fine reproductions for contemporary use, which combine the traditional skill and art of European craftsmanship along with the requirements of the trade. Told in their catalog how for upholstered furniture. The frames are designed by us, assembled, finished, and upholstered in our New York factory. The carvings are all done by hand. All frames, unless otherwise specified, are finished in patinated walnut. Frames may be ordered in special shades of walnut without extra charge or with an antique crackled paint finish at a slightly extra charge. So there were some other choices. If all the other companies had had these high standards, we would have no poor quality reproduction furniture. And we need the, the low end to meet the people with low end taste and the high end for the people with the high end, the connoisseurs with the high end taste. But then neither would be less wealthy. Millions have been able to afford the look so they admired. 
This market purchased lower-priced pieces that can only be described as loosely adapted, scaled-down copies made from cheaper materials. The November 1927 issue of Antiques, a magazine for collectors and others (coughs) who find interest in times past and in the articles of daily use and adornment, devised by the forefathers, spoke highly of this broad audience, which it called hordes of folk whose intelligent quota is, and always will be, eh, below average who are buying these antiques. So this is a quote from the magazine Antiques in 1927. Imagine. So what these people want and will want is not something that, insofar and its limitations of the price go, is really good and suitable, but something which satisfies their moronic notions of elegance. So the antique magazine is saying that the people buy reproduction furniture are satisfying their moronic notions of of elegance, or which appeals to their sentiment by virtue of some familiar association. They want to be like somebody else. So looking back in the 1920s, I, like the writer of the antiques, wish that only faithful reproductions had been made. But they weren't, we all know that. We can't change that, but what we must be sure of is that we know enough to be able to distinguish the best from among the infinite amount of bad reproduction furniture that was made around 1910. It is true that in the 1990s, as it was in the 1880s and 1900s, and the 1920s, that quality is what sets a piece of furniture apart. And quality is based on the successful combination of style, materials, and construction. So it seems hard to believe that students of the American furniture industry could forget that Eleanor Roosevelt's role in the creation of the American-made reproduction furniture, yet few people know of Val Kill Furniture. Mrs. Roosevelt lovingly wrote about her involvement with this handcrafted furniture in her 1945 biography, This I Remember. The year was 1924. Franklin Roosevelt was immersed in his rising political career, and the Roosevelts had little time for pri- or privacy. Their refuge that Roosevelt himself helped design and build beside Valkyll Brook at Hyde Park, New York. But, as Mrs. Roosevelt later wrote, the cottage was not an end in itself. It was the place in which Nancy Cook and Marion Dickerman lived and from which Miss Cook directed a furniture factory. Nancy Cook longed to reproduce copies of the early American furniture, but not, Mrs. Roosevelt stressed, worm-eaten antiques. Using as prototype pieces from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Hartford Museum, and private collections, Cook developed a line of fine-quality reproductions suitable to furnish upscale colonial revival homes that were springing up all across the country during this time. Seeing that, this was an opportunity to involve underutilized farm workers in a new industry that could flourish in the countryside. The Roosevelts lent their full support to this idea. It was a natural match. Everything about the project appealed to the social conscious Roosevelts. It should train young people for meaningful employment as cabinet makers and finishers. 
It would keep them close to home, and it would foster a love of the old and new of our historic American heritage. It didn't work. Eleanor Roosevelt gave more than just her time and influence to Val Kill Furniture. She invested earnings from her speaking engagements and writings, as well as some of her own inheritance in the project. Using this funding and local workers to turn out Chippendale-style chests and Queen Anne-style chairs, pewter pieces, and woven textiles, Mrs. Roosevelt, Nancy Cook, and Marion Dickerman, and Caroline O'Day, another friend, kept the factory going through the early years of the Depression. Then in 1936, like so many other noble enterprises that fell victim to the increasingly worsening economic times, their experiment ended and the shop closed. I never made any money, said Mrs. Roosevelt, she uh, later wrote. Rather, she admitted I was probably one one of the best customers my shop ever had because I brought various pieces of furniture as wedding presents and as gifts for other occasions. Eventually, the factory building was turned into apartments and finally became Mrs. Roosevelt's year-round home after Hyde Park was given up to the National Park Service. The site where Valkyll furniture was made still stands, though. While the factory itself is gone, many pieces of Valkyll furniture are still present at the Eleanor Roosevelt National Historic Site and at the famed Little White House in Warm Springs, Georgia. And that's where uh, Franklin would go down for his treatments for polio in the hot springs. So, and that's where <clears throat> that's where the president died. So I think that's going to, that little, fun little story, I mean, who would have thought that the, uh, the first lady was involved in, in making furniture, high copies of Chippendale and Queen Anne style furniture, or she would later become the first lady. And uh, she was actually, unfortunately, ridiculed by many good things she was trying to do for our country. But um, So that ends uh, episode, or part six, rather, of the reproduction of furniture. And if anyone out there wants to see us live in situ in, in the studio or uh, in the field, look us up at The Historic Preservationist, one word, um, no caps involved, at IGTV, our YouTube channel, or Instagram. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing off. Thanks for listening.